0: Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting, high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Board Bench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Boardrooms Best. I'm your host, Nancy May. And I have the privilege of being here today in um, Darien, Connecticut, with my good friend Mike Rotelli, who is the former chairman CEO of Pitney Bowes, and has served on the board of several public companies, including Eaton, for 20 years. That actually included the turnover of three, or the replacement, and... and, um, Hiring of three CEOs as well as Wyeth Pharmaceutical Company that went through quite a public merger with Pfizer. He is also an awesome advocate of the healthcare industry and serves on the board of Rand Health Advisory and formerly on the board of Pro Health Physicians. So, welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Nancy. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. You're one of my favorites, actually, Mike. So, today we're going to be talking uh, about the interest or the impact, really, of how boards focus on strategy and the health of the business and where they're great at this and where there actually might be some, some vulnerabilities about that. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the conversations that we've really had about how boards and directors individually need to focus on the the mission, the strategy, and the issues of the companies that they oversee.
1: Well, I think the number one priority of every board member is to recognize that he or she is both aligned with management and shareholders, but also an independent voice and an independent provider of perspective. So having an outside-in look at a company is a way of adding value that can't be added by management and where the shareholders are too far away to be able to provide an informed outside-in look. So the board is in a unique position to both have a lot of inside knowledge, but also the independence to have an outside-in look at issues.
0: So independence is great. But when I also talk to management, and you've been inside companies coming up the the corporate ladder as well, sometimes directors... Are perceived by the management team as really missing their mark and not really understanding what's going on. so so how do you really work at, at um, building the trust, I would say, as, especially as a CEO and a chairman of the management team that you've got that board really working for you in that in that focus?
1: I believe very strongly that first of all, you have to keep the organization of which you're serving on the board continuously top of mind. You need to look at all of the literature at which that industry or that company is relevant or mentioned, which is much easier today with simple tools like Google Alerts.
0: So you're actually saying that the CEO and a chairman's job is to keep those board members sharpen on their game.
1: Absolutely, and uh, what I appreciate at a company like Eaton is we, in addition to the board meetings and the board briefings which are given between meetings, we have two site visits a year. I just got back from a trip to two uh, plants in Mexico where I got a deep immersion in world-class manufacturing principles and the culture of continuous improvement that the company is trying to implement. I also believe that... There is a lot we can learn independently about the culture and uh, mission and strategies of companies.
0: So I'm going to stop you right there a second. So how do you actually build that trust between the CEO to say, as a director, I want to understand the culture of the company. How far can you go in as a director without making them uncomfortable that you've got your fingerprints all over everything?
1: It's a very good question, and uh, what I've done with the companies on whose boards I've served is have some offline conversations, either with the CEO, the general counsel, or some of the other senior management members that I have close relationships with, and I actually will road test an issue that I think is of importance. Uh, Eaton, fortunately, has the CEO and chairman uh, doing one-on-one meetings with each board member each year.
0: That takes a lot of time for a CEO away from their day-to-day work
1: as well. Well, they usually tack it on to trips they're making. I'm fortunate that I live an hour out of New York, so it's often the case that CEOs of companies are coming into New York for securities analyst meetings. I also uh, will talk to the lead director, who's an independent director, and test out an idea or concern I have with him. And I will talk to my peer directors that I think have a lot of wisdom in trying to figure out whether an issue is something that we're all seeing the same thing both during a meeting or after a meeting. So there are plenty of ways to test out whether you're on the mark or off the mark without taking up scarce board meeting time.
0: So recently I was at a, a discussion with a group of general counsels, which is also an interesting, and you've served as a lawyer in JC as well. The, the gentleman who was in from University of Chicago Law School was talking about strategy in the boardroom. And stated that there had been a survey that recently done, I can't remember exactly the name of the survey, but they asked directors how confident they were of understanding company strategy. Only 34% responded that they thought they knew the strategy and knew it well. And they had no confidence or little to no confidence in their peers in the boardroom that's an even bigger issue when it comes to communication with your CEO and your chairman as well.
1: Yes, I think that starts with the company that you are connected with as a board member. Do they make an effort to have the board be immersed in strategy? And I think if they are not doing Uh, periodic uh, strategy reviews, and ideally touching back on that at every meeting, then it's very likely that you're going to be out of touch with the strategy. There are certain commonalities, for example, with all industrial companies eaten among them. If they are dependent to any significant degree on aftermarket parts, then the company has to be thinking about the threats and opportunities that 3D printing, which is more formally called additive manufacturing, affords them. So there is always the question when you're in an aftermarket-based company that, You have to look at where 3D printing takes you, either positively or negatively.
0: How to be more nimble, how to make things faster, or how to get to your customers in a more engaged way. Yes, or who is potentially a
1: disruptor in that space whether you're the disruptor for a competitor or somebody else disrupts you. A customer could go out and do their own 3D printing on a one-off basis.
0: And just put you right out of business. Yeah,
1: or uh, in the case of the uh, commercial airlines, they could hire a maintenance and repair organization that makes replacement parts rather than going back to the manufacturer. So those are just some examples.
0: So your customer becomes the competitor in the long run then?
1: Well, that's one scenario. So you have to stay ahead of the customer and do something better than they could do themselves. It keeps you on your toes. But the good news about 3D manufacturing is it gives you the ability to do things with your technology and stay ahead of the game that your competitors, your customers, or third parties can't do. But you have to be much more attentive to the stability of that aftermarket and the vulnerability of it than you would have had to be in the old days.
0: Now, you're also a passionate, engaged person in the healthcare industry, and they're talking about 3D or additive manufacturing when it comes to body parts as well. So, I don't know, you know, maybe we need a new brain every now and then?
1: Well, I I think this whole question of Both the Internet of Things and I think what you're referring to, Ray Kurzweil, calls singularity, which is where you have artificial replacements for organic uh, parts or systems, uh, is something that has to be of long-term interest, I think, in... The case of healthcare, care, it's probably going to move a little more slowly because of the slowing effect of regulations. Right. But you also, I think as well, in every industry have to ask the question, and I was attentive to this at Pitney Bowes, what regulations could significantly change the market overnight? There are regulations, whether it's the FDA in the pharmaceutical industry or the FAA in the aircraft business. Right. Or in the case of Pitney Bowes, the Postal Service or the Postal Regulatory Commission that could radically change the equation. And as a board member, you have to ask the question continuously about what it is that can happen that would change the market overnight.
0: In a government that doesn't necessarily understand your business or industry, they're just uh, reacting to imposed pressures. That they're receiving from their consumer market, when you think about it, right? The voters.
1: Very often without an understanding of the unintended consequence of those regulations.
0: So one of the, the other points that we talked a little bit about was the obligation of directors to really go in and ask the tough questions in board meetings. But it's also not just at board meetings, it's between meetings that those conversations have as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I believe that board members have an unlimited opportunity. They do have to be selective and ultimately a little bit more discretionary in terms of when they approach the CEO or other officers between meetings. But you have an opportunity whenever there's a development in the news or you read something. I can honestly say that uh, probably a little over a year ago, I was approached by somebody who was talking to me about the global data protection regulations that were reaching the effective date in Europe and I sent a note off to uh, uh, the Eaton uh, CEO asking if they would brief us. Uh, the good news is they were already planning to do that, right. but it is clearly something that for any global company you have to pay attention to, because uh, every company, whether you realize it or not, has a lot of personally identifiable information that, not only in Europe, but around the world is going to come under the jurisdiction of the Global Data Protection Regulations.
0: So this goes into a little bit of the, the adage that I, that I always hear in, in other large group meetings is directors should have nose in but fingers out. However, more and more today, it seems like directors really have to have their hands a little bit more on the steering wheel or at least maybe on the gear shift every now and then to dig further than, than they have in the past.
1: Oh, absolutely. You don't want to substitute your judgment for management where no. reasonable people can disagree because management will tend to know more about the issue.
0: And they're there day to day. You're not. Right.
1: but. You should satisfy yourself that they have given you a reasonable explanation or have charted out a reasonable and defensible path. You should never walk out of a meeting feeling that there isn't a reasonable answer to whatever issue you've brought up. It may not be the way you would have gone, but you should feel that it's a defensible position on the part of the management.
0: So don't let up till you're satisfied. Satisfied that
1: there's a reasonable answer, not necessarily your answer, but an alternative, reasonable answer.
0: That brings up an interesting point. There are a number of new directors that are going onto boards every year. And if somebody's never served on a board before and may have an area of expertise that maybe some of the other directors don't have and have a nagging question, how do they bring up those points, especially in the first or second board meeting without ruffling feathers or playing with politics as much as it shouldn't really be there. As I
1: said, I think testing it out with a more experienced director and getting a point of view about how best to bring an issue up so that it has the maximum impact is something I would certainly be doing. I think someone who goes in cold and brings up an issue, even if it's the right issue, they may not understand context, history, and how what they're saying is going to be interpreted. So it's a good idea to test it out with somebody else before you charge in and eat up scarce uh, board meeting time with it.
0: Or if it's a nagging issue that's happening right there in the boardroom, even at a break time to say, hey, listen, Mike, I need to talk to you about this. This is something I'm really concerned about. How do we bring it up?
1: You also have the opportunity to speak more freely in executive session about the issue because the lead director typically is a very experienced individual who can translate that probably better in language the CEO can understand than you as an inexperienced director would be able to do.
0: Or even that the CEO might accept, right? Right. Right? Yeah. A couple of other things that we talked about in the past too are really understanding what happens with boards. As they're going through the strategic process and even thinking about, you know, a CEO transition going forward and making sure you've got that right CEO on board, especially if you've got an existing strategy. How often do you see a new CEO coming in and saying, we're scrapping the strategy and we're going in a new direction, especially when you've got a company that might be underwater?
1: Well, CEOs who are going to be on the short list of candidates should have a way of talking about what they would be doing if they move into the top position. Now, it's a little awkward when the CEO is a direct report to to an incumbent and doesn't want to appear to be disloyal to uh, his or her boss. So you have a tougher time in that situation trying to sort out what this individual would do. I think what you can do, however is determine that individual's adaptability, his or her ability to assess an external environment, and the ability to be transparent with the board and to work collaboratively with the board. You can test all of those things out. If I were to say the one thing that I have felt most challenged about, whether as a CEO or a board member, it is that the person you're putting into the job doesn't just react to the situation that is in place when he or she moves into the job, but you have to assume that that environment is going to keep changing. Mm-hmm. So you also have to determine whether that individual can adapt to the multiple changes and twists and turns that market's going to take after he or she takes over the job. And what I would also say, and without getting into a specific example, you have to determine whether that individual has the moral courage to take tough stands either with board members or activist shareholders or government regulators. One of my challenges walking into the Pitney Bowes CEO position in 1996 was that I knew we would have to possibly bring a lawsuit against the u.s postal service which was our regulator and it was very very high risk but i also knew that if we didn't do it uh, there was a higher risk of letting them trample on their own regulations and try to drive us out of business which was the point of view of some of their senior leadership at the time what i did with my board was over a period of 18 months have four separate board meetings plus a lot of one-on-ones with board members to get them comfortable with the alternative that I was going to be recommending, which worked out in our favor in 1998 and 1999. You
0: took a year to sell the idea, really, in order to be that heavy fist in the industry that, was, that not, was a very aggressive... Right. It was
1: not obvious that that was the best course of action. It wouldn't have been obvious to independent board members. But I felt, based on my experience with the Postal Service and the people involved, that it was the only viable path we could take,
0: so times are a little different today when when the markets are shifting at a faster rate, being able to to pivot when you need to or come in with an iron fist is something you need to be doing at a faster rate. Getting a larger company, especially an older, more mature company, to do that is even more difficult, and they boards companies don 't have a year to make those changes today. How do you see those discussions going? differently now than maybe they did back when you were CEO and chairman of Penny Bowes. Well,
1: even during my 11-year tenure as CEO and 12-year tenure as chairman, which overlapped, obviously, uh, there were situations where we had to react much faster. In 1999 and 2000, I had to very quickly educate the board members that uh, the two new entrants to the postage payment market, eStamp and com, were not major threats and we should not overreact to them. So I moved at a much faster pace to keep people from panicking because there was a lot of panic both in the boardroom on the management team and with the broader employee population because of media coverage and the belief that everything was going to change overnight. And I had to keep reminding people of two things. One was Peter Drucker's famous quote that organizations and industries always overestimate the speed of change, but they underestimate in the long run the magnitude of change and that we should keep focusing on the magnitude of change, but not overreact in the short term. The second was that I had to keep reminding people, and I did this through a demo in the boardroom, that the Postal Service had a vested interest in keeping 100 million desktop printers from being currency printers that were not adequately secure. Uh And I had a product manager come in and show the competitive products operating under then-existing postal regulations, and it was the only way they could quickly get the picture that this wasn't going to be an immediate threat. But I had to behave very differently than just one-on-one conversations over a one-year period. This had to be done in matters of weeks and months. And it had to be done more than once.
0: Well, and I think the interesting thing, too, is that if a board member has come up in a large corporation and managed politics to get to their particular career, that's taken years. And now they have to think more nimbly in a board environment where in in years past, there was no need for that. So the new breed of director is really something that boards and chairmen and CEOs need to think about going forward so that they're aligned not just with management, but really understanding all aspects of the business, the customer, the employee employer and the um, investor. And each market is shifting as we speak, really. Yes,
1: uh, every market shifts. And the question a board member has to ask is what handful of developments or perhaps what single development could change the speed of a market in a different direction? For example, sitting in a board where there is a question about alternative energy, the issue that someone should be looking at is, what does management and its outside expert think about the price of oil? That will drive the speed of adoption of alternative energy. When the price of oil went up to over $100 a barrel, uh, it was very clear that alternative energy was more competitive. When it drops to $30 a barrel... We get more comfortable. Then, obviously, fossil fuels are going to stay in place, and the rate of change in the market is going to be slower because fossil fuels are so cost-effective compared to their alternatives.
0: The impact on customers' and and businesses' lives is the fear factor.
1: Yeah. Today, I would ask the question when you're talking about wind or solar or battery storage, what's the crossover point in terms of the cost of electricity with battery storage? And when it gets to $75 a kilowatt hour or below, then a lot of things are going to happen a lot faster than they are today, where it's well over $100 per kilowatt hour.
0: So you're educating your consumer as well as the board member at the same time. And even the education to the consumer is even more difficult because you've got a broader range of of individuals to really address.
1: Yeah. Clayton Christensen wrote about this 20 years ago when he talked about the innovators dilemma. Mm -hmm. He said the mistakes incumbents made in every case where he studied innovators who disrupted a market is they would take a one, time look at the disruptive company, dismiss it, and never go back and relook at the point at which there was a catalyst for much more rapid change. And I was recently up in my hometown of Rochester, New York, talked to a guy who was one of the inventors of the cell phone camera, who told me that 21 years ago, the Eastman Kodak board said that the quality of Photography from a cell phone camera was so poor that they could not imagine anybody ever wanting to take pictures from their cell phone. What they didn't look at was what were the enablers for a good enough quality of photography and a much easier uh, sharing of that photography with others or a communication of that image to a desktop or laptop or more permanent storage device. They simply didn't go through that exercise. They looked at a point in time and said, this is not going to be a threat.
0: Yet that's the deciding factor in so many cases. I was out west with a bunch of friends. We just took a week off out in Sedona, and I have a, a Samsung phone. The others all had apples. My phone camera did so much better than their apples, and now they're all looking at switching and getting rid other apples and going to a Samsung phone, which was fascinating had nothing to do with the communication device. It had to do with the visual device.
1: So what I always ask as a board member in any marketplace is what one or two things could happen that would take this disruptive technology or process or vendor or business model and make it a serious threat.
0: And as simple as small as it could possibly be. I right. Mean, who would think? You know, a phone camera? I mean, really? Right. Back in the day.
1: But there were two or three things that changed with those phone cameras, obviously, the the ability to get richer processing in a smaller space made the camera a far more effect uh, the, the cell phone a far more effective carrier of camera images than it was in 1997. It's something very often that is outside of the market in which the company is participating. Pitney Bowes looked for years and years at potential threats to the mail. And contrary to popular belief, email, the internet,
0: faxes, faxes,
1: none of that changed or dropped the volume of mail. But the explosion of the, or the breaking of the consumer credit bubble by the financial crisis caused mail volumes to drop in this country by 30% in two years. And the Dodd-Frank legislation and the Basel III credit uh, risk management standards made those changes permanent. So sitting in the boardroom of Pitney Bowes after 2008, and I was gone, clearly the board would need to assess that the market that was there for uh, transaction mail at the margins was never going to come back.
0: But even in different industries, so we talked about additive manufacturing, we talked about phones and the mail system and and government regulation. We'd also had a conversation a little bit about the healthcare industry, which is one of your areas of, of personal interest. And to see how that has changed over the years, where the large corporations are not the innovators anymore, it's the smaller upstarts that are the innovators. And just getting to extract value out of what the even existing product base is. Is, is a challenge for companies if they just think differently, right? Yes,
1: the uh, insurance companies have to recognize that they have to do business in a more proactive way. And I think what's going to happen, what has to happen, whether we have single payer or whether we have some hybrid of private and government insurance is that we will see a movement to hold hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals responsible for population health, as opposed to this fee-for-service transaction-based system that we've had for so long. And when you give a hospital or a physician practice a budget for a population, they have to basically function differently than they did in the fee-for-service model. And everything has to change their IT systems, their governance processes, uh,
0: Their focus on, on the individual, the patient, has changed totally?
1: Right. And they have to look beyond the beyond the four walls of the institution. The Stanford Health System here in Connecticut is independent. It's not part of a large public company, but they're doing outreach into the community with a health and wellness project where they're partnering with the housing authority and with educational institutions and with public safety to create a safe health and wellness area that serves and improves the health Of the Medicaid population that they're serving. When they are held accountable and given a global budget for that population, which they're not quite at today, they will have to be paying a lot more attention to other stakeholders that they've never looked at before. The healthcare institutions are going to more increasingly become anchor institutions in a community, and they're going to have to orchestrate health not just within their four walls, but in what's going on. On the street. The other 99% of the time when people are not serving as patients.
0: Oh, that could actually be a whole new conversation on another show when we're talking about people take responsibility for their lives or they don't. But, uh... But if I'm on the board of a hospital, I've got to be thinking about what's going on outside the hospital.
1: It's not just revenue management inside the hospital. It's going to be, what do I do to make people healthier so if they leave the hospital after a surgery, they don't come back within 30 days, in which case the hospital doesn't get paid for that care. So there's a lot going on now that's forcing people to look outside the four walls of the institutions that they serve.
0: The explosion of diabetes, and in talking with a friend who's the the CEO of a health and hospital system not too long ago, I asked them what was the biggest expense for the hospital when it came to delivering service. And they said at either end of life, the beginning of life with children who might have had health issues at birth and at the end of life. The middle tend to be okay, but we have An aging population and we also have a population that's not taking the majority of them are not taking responsibility for their own health when you think of the the explosion of obesity and type 2 diabetes and and other issues that are happening it It's a big, looming challenge for our society and our population. Yeah, if I'm sitting on a board... How do you change that mindset? How do you make it happen? Well,
1: I think the first thing you would ask is, what could change everything in terms of how you manage a population?
0: What's the catalyst? And
1: the catalyst in that case is most likely Medicare and private insurance companies giving a hospital a budget for a population. And saying to them, you've got to work within that budget. If it costs more, you're on the hook for it yourself. And if it costs less, you can keep the difference. And in those cases, when you have global budgeting, then it raises a lot more threats and opportunities. And the unlimited care people give at the end of life all of a sudden has to be looked at differently in terms of how you interact with them, in terms of how you present the alternatives, And it's very challenging because the Republicans nine years ago brought up the subject of what they call death panels. But that will get revisited because inevitably we only have so much money we can spend on health care. It's going to end up crowding out uh, education, infrastructure spending, career readiness, all the other things government spends money for, social services to help the homeless. There's only so much you can do with a fixed amount of money. So the idea of giving a 97-year-old unlimited care until he or she passes away is something that has to be revisited. And the question of how you do it is clearly a board and a management responsibility.
0: And a moral and ethical. Right.
1: And also from a societal standpoint, how do you deal with the political blowback of starting to
0: do more end-of-life counseling? Yeah, when morals and ethics come into the boardroom, it's not just black and white business. Well, Mike, we're at the end of our time together. I would love to do another show with you because I know the two of us, when we get together, we can talk on and on about a number of subjects that I think are very interesting to our audience.
1: Thank you very much, Nancy. Thank
0: you very much for joining me here today at The Boardroom's Best. If you've liked this show, I'd encourage you to subscribe, to share it with your friends, to share it with your colleagues, and send us more notes and comments on the shows. We've been receiving an awful lot. And thank you, everybody, for joining us here again at The Boardroom's Best. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.